Today's show is on Ars Magica, the game of mythic medieval wizardry that informed the development of the Order of Hermes for a time in Mage the Ascension's history. We specifically talk about setting, place, and mechanics in this episode, and really don't talk about the actual hermetic houses. The Order of Hermes in Mage the Ascension has different houses than in Ars Magica, and we will eventually do an episode about literally every house of Hermes ever mentioned in Mage the Ascension or Ars Magica and how to use them in your game. As a quick reference, we do mention a bunch of Order of Hermes things. As a quick reference, the city of Pymander is the kind of mass ascension state for the Order of Hermes, where each person fully manifests their will in accordance with hermetic laws and practice. The Code of Hermes strictly governs what is an appropriate action for a hermetic. Kurdaman is a type of stylized duel where magical skill is used to settle an argument. The M20 entry for the order indicates there are 13 houses, which are different than the ones listed in Ard Magica, but we mostly discuss House Quasitor, which is the house that oversees internal law and justice and investigates hermetic crimes, House Bonnie Sages, which is obsessed with the solitary-ish pursuit of magical lore, House Flambeau, which is the more military wing of the order and specializes in forces and other kabooms, House Tremere, which was a cult of personality kind of around Lord Tremere, who ultimately felt a vampirism and converted his inner circle and then caused the first Masasa War. House Diadne, which was a group of secretive druids that Tremere called Diabolists as a distraction from him becoming a vampire. House Titleist, which is a house that constantly challenges other wizards and... If you use the metaplot event of the second Masasa War, kind of fell to vampirism in the wake of the Avatar Storm and House Ex Miscellanea, which is the house for everyone who doesn't fit somewhere else. We also mention House Bjornair, which is a group of shapeshifting mystics who in Mage left to join the Verbena at the founding of the Council of the Nine Mystic Traditions, House Creamon, which is a group of mystic seers, House Gerbaton, who are social diplomats, House Mercere, who maintain lines of communication and the orders interactions with cities, and House Marinita, which is part of House Ex Miscellanea, that specialized in the magic of fairies. For more information, I recommend either grabbing Order of Hermes Revised or listening to our episodes on the Order of Hermes as part of the Tomes of Magic series. Both books are great, and the revised one is one of the best well-done revised tradition books. And with that, on with the show. Hi, Mage fans. This is your host, Terry Robinson, with Mage the Podcast, and I am thrilled to pieces to introduce our guest for today. It is Thrice Great. Thrice Great has been on before, and today we will be discussing Ars Magica, or probably Ar Majeka, because one thing that kept occurring to me as I read this book is I have been apparently pronouncing all of the hermetic houses incorrectly for a decade. Uh, Thrice Great, how are you doing? I'm great. I just want to clarify for our audience that this is Ars Magica, not our magica so it's the one about the order of hermes not about the uh, magic pirates thrice great what is ours magica and why as mage players should we care about it ours magica is a game about a wizardly society that many mage fans will be familiar with called the order of hermes it was created and developed by jonathan tweet and mark rain hagen for their company lion rampart games why should folks care about it i think because it it has so many parallels to the world of darkness. I think that in many ways it developed the style, the mechanics, and the the atmosphere that would become the world of darkness. 
And also, I think it just ties really, really great into Dark Ages, any of the Dark Ages, World of Darkness, Dark Ages stuff, Sorcerer's Crusade. And I, th- I think finally and most importantly, it gave us the Tremere. It also gave us gave us House Gerbaton, or which I am now learning is Yerbato or something like that. Yeah, Yerbaton. I, in our next show, we're going to go through and we're going to have a pronunciation guide for all of the Hermetic houses. So because it's actually included, unlike in the World of Darkness stuff, yes. Ars Magica includes Latin pronunciation guides. So I was pleased up until House Thig. There were no two houses that Adam and I pronounced the same way. And that pleased me to pieces. Um, so how long has Ars Magica been around? Has it had several editions? How's it changed over time? So there have been five editions of Ars Magica. The first was put out by the tiny company uh, of Mark Rainhagen called Lion Rampart in 1989. And then Lion Rampart and White Wolf Magazine merged and they produced the second edition. Um, sorry, uh, the second edition was produced shortly after. Then the third edition was produced in 1992. And the third edition is is probably the most robust of the early Ars Magica. It has a much darker tone that's very similar to the World of Darkness. And there were rumors that actually Ars Magica was going to be the World of Darkness, Dark Ages setting. And you can definitely see when when they were designing it that, that, that 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 was the plan. They included more vampire stuff, particularly in the Tremere. And it had a stronger focus on the Infernal and the order is depicted as uh, much more troublesome in the world than it was in the past and in later editions. And then, so, so I think I think folks who are familiar with the Order of Hermes from the World of Darkness, a lot of that comes from the third edition. Because because if there's one thing that that Mage never lets you forget, it's that Hermetics are jerks. So <laughs> I think that really comes from third edition. Then there was um, the fourth edition after Wizards of the Coast bought Ars Magica, and that was 1994 to 1995. But it was released by Atlas Games because Wizards of the Coast couldn't make up their mind about what they wanted to do. And then the fifth edition, which is uh, really a, a, a wonderful edition, was released by Atlas Games in 2004, and that is the most current edition of Ars Magica. It's amazing how much gaming came out of a basement of St. Olaf College in that like Jonathan Tweet, Mark Reinhagen, and like we forget Lisa Stevens, founder of Paizo, also came out of that like little group contemporaneously. But anyway, uh, what do you play in Ars Magica? You play a whole bunch of things. Mainly you play one of the the wizards, uh, a magus maga of the order of hermes but you can also play apprentices you can play companions which are sort of equivalent to consors uh they're they're slightly more powerful might have supernatural abilities might not they could be fighting men or women or scholars of some sort and then there are my favorite which are the grogs and they are sort of these um weird uh like servants in shakespeare i think you would think of them as groundlings they're they run errands or mop or do the laundry or make the food i really love grogs i i think that they're a lot of fun i ran a all order of hermes game and uh each of the players had to have a companion and a grog and the grogs were very frequently scene stealers um because they were so uh just cranky and overworked and just a lot of fun but i think folks will be will will see a lot of 
similarities between what you see in Gods and Monsters, but more so, I think, in the Supplement Ascension's right hand. You can really see that they were trying to do an approximation of what you play in Ars Magica there. So when are we going to have the I Heart Grogs t-shirt that is what allows you and I to both retire? I love Grogs. And as, as I was putting this show together, I, I, I was thinking, I, I think I'm going to put out a Storyteller's Vault on Grogs. So I, I was thinking of calling it, let me, let me, let me um, sort of market test this. I was going to, how about Grogs the Grogging? What do you think? Bro, I, to me, I would have to do Grogging. <laughs> um, <laughs> I would have to slightly modify the part of speech. I think it would have to be something like assistant Mick existent face and other useful grogs for your for your mage game because like when you say grog I immediately think of the storyteller like Boblin the Goblin or something similar where it's like this this thing literally needs any name and people just kind of kind of run with it like when I think grog it's like if you could get less than one dimensional, that's in some cases what grogs would be. They are the Warcraft two peasants that you click and they say mean things. And but <laughs> I I want that supplement to exist. So what other magic practitioners are there besides the Order of Hermes? The Order of Hermes, as you correctly pronounce, they, they are not the only magical practitioners within the world of Ars Magica, but they are the most powerful. So Hermetic Magic takes pride of place within the, within the Ars Magica setting, which isn't to say you can't play other ma magical practitioners, but their magic is not just, it's just not going to match up to what the Order of Hermes has. There are numerous supplements across various editions. For example, for third edition, there's um, Hidden Paths, which is all about Eurocentric shamans. They detail Slavic traditions, Mediterranean traditions, and Northern European traditions of spirit magic. I think Dark Ages Mage, you would, you would see some definitely similarities there between the Spirit Talker Fellowship and kind of what's described there. For fifth edition, there's a book called Rival Magic, which gives you options to play the all-female warrior sorceresses of the Amazons, which you can definitely see parallels to the Sisters of Hippolyta. There's the Rogue Court Wizards of, of the Augustan Brotherhood, which is sort of an interesting contrast. We'll get into this a little later because the Order of Hermes is forbidden from meddling too deeply in the affairs of mortals. There's the Muspeli, which is Nordic sorcerers. And there's a uh, an Arabic sorcerer that the, the Qatar, I, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. And they're off in the Arabian Seas. There's head magicians, Scandinavian rune sorcerers, um, weird night stalkers, other learned magicians that did and want to join the Order of Hermes. There's also House Ex Miscellanea, which can encompass all of those folks or just people from weird lineages. The fourth edition book has actually has a book on Jewish mysticism. I know you just did the, the episode with Charles Siegel. And there are options for divine magic and realms of power of the divine. So there's plenty of uh, other options and other denizens with uh, mystical powers that can foil your hermetic wizards or uh, attempt to steal their grogs, or at least have grog say rude things to the priests that go by i i do grog quest i think that yeah i also i, I both want grog quest and i want a house of hermes that is house hermes named after like that focuses on like kind of the accoutrement of fashion that they can just go toe to toe with a black suit and being like you've got nothing on me we've I'll, I'll include that i i do want to do a yarbaton book at some point i think that they would make a great society you know they could they could be called the sartorials 
you know, and and they they're all about like weaving mystic symbols into like really fancy luxury goods. I think that would be a hot time. I would I don't play think that. You understand how much I want this now. Um, <laughs> in, in the same way that I think World of Darkness needs voguing rules, I think that would be great. I would be down for a Hollow One voguing cardamom. I think that would be so amazing. So we have talked about uh, seemingly mortal magic in Mage the Ascension. There's a world with changelings running around and true faith and so on and so forth. Are there other types of magic besides wizardly magic? Yeah, so we mentioned some of the practitioners of it, but so mainly, so Ars Magica's cosmology is divided into four realms of power, magic, fairy, the divine, and the infernal. So the aforementioned folks are going to, they're all going to fall under the magic realm. And and the magic realm is kind of loosely defined. It's it's kind of similar to the high umbra in many respects. It, It depends on what edition you're looking at, but each of the other realms has their own kinds of magic. So fairies have their own kinds of magic, which deals with a lot of illusions and pact related stuff. Demons have their own kind of magic. And that supplement also has rules for uh, summoning demons as well as gaining favors from them or the black magic that can be gained from demons or hunting those people as well as uh, the faithful also have their own kinds of magic that they practice that are are faith-based. So what does the Order of Hermes look like in Ars Magica and from the one that we know and how does it differ? This is a really tough question. In so many ways, it's identical. And yet in so many ways, it's totally different. But the devil is definitely in the details here. So similarities here are uh, the general structure of the Order Hermes is the same. You've got your houses, you've got quasitors, you've got tribunals, you've got your, your book wizard stereotypes. The Pax Hermetica is very similar, although they don't, they don't really call it that. The history is, is roughly the same. Like, I think if you go and read Ars Magica and read the history, you're like, okay, this is pretty much similar. Right up to the, sh- the Schism War. After that, it varies by edition. Third edition cleaves very closely to the World of Darkness. Later edition looks quite different. Um, there's still 12 major houses and then whatever houses or practitioners are in ex-miscellanea. Although there really aren't any houses, it's just sort of the hodgepodge where they stuff the wizards that either can't make it into the other 12 houses or are just from weirdo lineages and are part of the order. The Code of the Hermes, Code of Hermes should look very familiar, um, but there are some uh, important differences there as well. Ars Magica, I think, is a game about magic and myth, and Ascension is more a game about a clash of beliefs. That's putting it very, very generally and very roughly. I, I think to say that Ascension is a game about anything is fighting words, but <laughs> for our purposes, for every Ascension player, there is um, a different Ascension game to be played. And um, all, <laughs> and I think this is very Mage the Ascension, always are valid. <laughs> so put another way, Ascension puts an emphasis on why you can do magic, Ars Magica puts an emphasis on what you can do with magic. So Ascension's worldview is explicit, and so is its magic. Ars Magica's worldview is implicit, and so is its magic. Like, for example, Ars Magica sympathy plays a much more important role in hermetic magic, and that's one of the differences that you're going to see. But why that is isn't really discussed. It just kind of is. Other differences, vampires were included in third edition, um, specifically House Tremere, but they got rid of all of that stuff for the revised fifth edition. Vampires are still 
around and the Tremere still deal with them because they're in Transylvania, but the House Tremere has not been corrupted by vampires. The roles in the order are often detailed and more specialized. Like you have House Mercari that are messengers. You have House Yarbaton who are in the cities. You've got Bonnie Sagas who are kind of kind of your lab rats. Uh, this is kind of similar to what you see in the World of Darkness, but it's not as emphasized as it is in Ars Magica. In fifth edition, they reorganized the houses. And I think this is a really great addition and something to consider when you're looking at the, the nine mystic traditions is that, so you've got the true lineages, which are a style of magic handed down by one of the founders. You've got mystery cults, which are organized around a central mystery or power. Like for example, true lineage, Bonnie Sagas, they pass down a specific style of magic. House Marinita, they're all fairy magic and that's their central mystery. And then you have societies which are which are sort of mystic fellowships that are organized around an idea or kind of agenda. They don't have a mystery or a powerful lineage. Um, they're just sort of like-minded folk. There's also a greater emphasis placed on the founders of each house, which I liked and I thought was a missed opportunity within the, the World of Darkness mage. I thought that I was surprised that they didn't have the founders of the Order of Hermes as like signature characters for Dark Ages or even maybe Sorcerer's Crusade, but they, they may have not wanted to sort of re-entangle themselves with the copyright at that point, because I think at that point, Ars Magica had moved over to Wizards of the Coast or maybe even Atlas. I, I can't quite remember when Dark Ages or Sorcerer's Crusade came out, so... I like to think of the different types as you have open groups who are the mystical rodden gun club of the Order yeah. of Hermes. Spe- specifically, House Flambeau is definitely a rodden gun club. <laughs> yes. Um, you, you, you have the lineages, which are all the people who are like, I'm descended from Charlemagne. Um, yes. or yeah. <laughs> And then you have yeah. the mystery cults who are Frank Zappa fans. There is something fundamental they are trying to understand that I will never get. And they just have a fundamentally different relationship with the world than me. I think the mystery cults are probably the most interesting. They're they're certainly the weirdest. Um, both House Marinita and House Creamon, for example, are pretty bananas once you get into sort of their practices and, and what they're pursuing. You know, I, I'm surprised nobody marched them. It's kind of weird enough, but may, maybe they're secretive enough and they have enough politics to go, uh, political favors that they're able to sort of keep the other houses at bay. Um, there's also an emphasis on, um, there's like a, Going back to sort of the snobbery of hermetics, they call them the Latinate houses. The houses that are derived from sort of Roman magic are considered better than the houses that aren't like House Bjorne, for example, or House Didne, for example, which they actually did exterminate, allegedly. Wink, wink. That's sort of an interesting dynamic within the Order of Hermes that you don't really see within the World of Darkness. Another thing that I think is really interesting here is it's touched upon a little in the World of Darkness, but I don't think it's quite as emphasized. And the Order of Hermes is definitely more of a problem within the world of darkness, the, the, the mythic age of the world of darkness. But in Ars Magica, the Order of Hermes operates openly and exists as a pillar of mythic Europe society. So it, it has to kind of toe the line with the nobility, the church, and the commoners if they want resources. And they have to engage with politics to a certain extent, but they're limited in how much that they can do that. So uh, unlike the world of darkness order, 
they live in this tense peace with the other people in mythic Europe. Hermetic law aspires to enforce that for the betterment of the order, because if you start, like in the revised book, they reference some crazy wizard turning a forest in, into a flesh-eating forest. In, or, in Ars Magica, if you did that, you would, you would be immediately tribunaled. So the Order of Hermes isn't as troubling for non-wizards, right? Uh, Non-magic users. Where it is equally troubling is with other practitioners of magic. So earlier in the Order of History or Hermes history, there's this join or die order, which is mainly House Titleist, uh, Tremere, and Flambeau. But the order did, you know, tacitly support this. At the start of the setting, which is in the 1200s, there it, it's sort of still on the books, the join or die kind of ruling that they make is still on the books, but it isn't necessarily practiced as often as it was in the past. But powerful independent wizards or wizards who steal Parma Magica, they get a join or die order. So the Order of Hermes feels, the thing that it feels most strongly about is it's Parma Magica, because that's, it, that's what sets it apart from other magic users besides their magical technique, is that they're the only wizards with any kind of magical defenses, and they don't want the other wizards to have that, because that would put them on an equal footing. So, so hermetics are not jerks for the most part to the church, to what we'd call sleepers and mage, but they are jerks to other magical practitioners. The order traces its roots to the cult of Mercury. We don't really learn a whole lot about the cult of Mercury. And as I was going over this, I kind of wonder if the order of Hermes actually made the cult of Mercury up <laughs> as, as um, magicians of that era and later eras were wont to do. They wanted to trace their lineages to an ancient wisdom, you know, tradition. So I, I don't know. I, I kind of wonder that. There's no true naming system. Uh, there's no Umbru protocols. The approach to spirit magic is pretty neutral rather than the somewhat moralized version that you see in the world of darkness. Hermetic magic touches on the folklore around wizards, but is otherwise not particularly hermetic and only related to the real world magic in very much the loosest sense of that world. One more important difference is magi have what's known as the gift. This is sort of like your avatar, but it's not really awakened. It's just in a... It, it's not really an entity. It's just your ability to practice magic. And for those familiar with Requiem, it's kind of like the, it's like the predator beast, the mark of the predator, I think. Anyway, other people can sense that you're something other than human, right? There's like this like revulsion or this fear of you. The gift causes that in other people. It's, it's kind of similar for werewolf fans. Werewolves with high rage sort of radiate this, this energy that mortals find difficult to tolerate. It's very similar. If you go into a city or you go into an inn, if you have a blatant gift, uh, the innkeeper is likely to be distrustful of you and maybe not give you the best inn or maybe not let you stay at all. But it can cause a lot of hostility and tension, which is why the order engages a lot of um, companions and grogs to be middlemen for them. And I think one of the things is the, the whole idea of the gift causing people to be suspicious of you and the fact that there isn't good magic defense really does to me change the prehistory. Because in Mage the Ascension history, we do have mystical fellowships that gotten together and mages cooperating and the reed and the cup and so on and other magical societies. But we have this really interesting reason why it wasn't necessarily the case here. Also, one of the things I got from reading through, there is such things as true didactic material 
material. One of the arguments I make about mage is magic is impossible to directly teach in the sense that uh, I can teach someone a language through repeated interaction and they can acquire that knowledge and then become able to use it. I argue that in Mage the Ascension, learning magic is closer to learning how to pole vault or fence. There is a element to it that is so thoroughly internalized it is very hard to pick up with from books, which is why Mage in later editions dropped benefits to their being study materials, but may still give a bonus for a mentor like that. That's an interesting point that you make there. I cannot shake first E from my sort of default mindset about certain aspects of mage. And I always assumed that the, what made the nine traditions different from other mages was that they had more or less, they had, they had systems of training, you know, because there's a lot of talk uh, about why they're sort of together and like what their values are. And it's not really all that well-defined, but one of the things that's consistent about it is that, is that tradition mages are allegedly, um, and may- maybe this is their own propaganda, are allegedly excellent or expect excellence from their students, that they're notoriously hard on their students. So, but I also see what you're saying as far as like how it's supported from the source material and the dropping of study materials and mm-hmm. like, but we never quite, they never quite define it. I always found that a really frustrating point and it gets talked about a lot on the mage discord, how do mages get trained, right? And, you know, the Order of Hermes is one of the few tradition books where we actually get kind of like a, a full description of the path from induction to awakening to initiation and becoming a, you know, quote unquote, adult within that tradition. So it's a, it's, it's a fascinating question. And it's one that I think Ars Magica answers a lot better than Ascension does because, yeah. because of its emphasis on the mechanics of magic and how much studying they do. And you have so many mechanical options to do stuff with magic. I also get the idea that in Ars Magica, magical knowledge accumulates over time. It is a science that is being unearthed, where to me in Mage the Ascension, we never get that idea. It's almost the opposite. We lose magic knowledge over time. So to me, if magic is more of an embodied skill, that would explain why mages never really get better at it generation on generation. In the same way that there has been a vast explosion of ability in the sciences, there was never a vast explosion in ability for uh, running <laughs> there there are kind of <laughs> d- discrete limits to it and uh, you could also make an argument that reality is changing becoming more strict at the rate at which magic knowledge is accumulated but i never felt as quite as comfortable with that i i like the idea that magic is a very difficult type of dance more than just learning how to speak Enochian. yeah you know you would think that that you know particularly institutions like the order of hermes or I think more importantly, the the technocracy or, or even the society of ether or virtual adepts would would have systems of knowledge creation, retention, and dissemination. So you're not constantly reinventing the wheel, kind of like ascension implies. It, it it's always a vexing question, and and I, I think could vary from chronicle to chronicle. And we do get the idea, though, at least with the technomancers, since their magic is constantly falling into the consensus, they do kind of need to run in place to stay ahead. To me, the interesting one is with the Akashiana or the Euthanatoi or something where it's like, well, this avatar has been through this 200 times. Why do I not awaken with Narite of seven or something like that? That to me is the is is kind of an interesting question, but it, that kind of hinges on the nature of the avatar and so on. But the needless right. to say, the question of magical progress in the world is is right. one is right. one that I find interesting. 
it's very scholarly in Ars Magica where where it isn't necessarily, I mean, certainly for the Order of Hermes and many of the technocratic conventions, it's a scholarly pursuit. Mm-hmm. You know, the progenitors, I think, are another example of that. But for the cult of ecstasy, you know, it's much more embodied and experiential, you know, and for, you know, the Akashiana and the Uthanatoi, it's more devotional or spiritual. For the Celestial Chorus, perhaps a matter of faith. As I said before, Always are valid in ascension, <laughs> which are which is also fighting words. I'd like to say, uh, <laughs> because yeah. <laughs> uh, so we've kind of talked about the world in which this takes place, and again, this is something that we can either graft pieces into our own games if we want to. We can use it as a justification of one of the ideas that I think is kind of interesting is the traditions having been formed in the 15th century. I think mage becomes much more interesting if the traditions in the technocracy actually just kind of fall out of maybe the 19th century. So this whole thing is much more recent. And I very much like the idea of there being a magical breakthrough of some sort that suddenly allows mages or wizards to work together for the first time. And that kind of sets off this mad dash to assemble factions in what is now a less than two century old, say, uh, Ascension War. As you mentioned, it also introduces the more material in the Schism War, which we got in Order of Hermes Revised. I like the idea that you can now have an alternative House Tremere. Earlier, you mentioned that the House that um, House Tremere was infected by vampirism. My reading of the situation is the opposite. Vampires were infected with hermeticism, but that's just me. Um, <laughs> um, that's a game I would play. <laughs> <laughs> so you're suggesting that the Order of Hermes may be, may be more subtle and tricky than we first realized. <laughs> yes. And Tremere from the Latin tremere, which means to tremble, uh, because Tremere was so afraid of dying, I think. Just as a note, redcap.org is a amazing wiki of Ars Magica material. And if you're just curious and you want to plunk around there, it seems to be well done. The thing I love about it is many of the pages have an opinion and commentary section at the end of it, which I think all wikis should have. Talking about Ars Magica and other ways in which it differs, what kind of, how does the score, the the core skill test system in Ars Magica work? It's very simple. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. Do you think it's more complex than the world of darkness? I actually think it's a little easier than that. It just requires more math. It does require a little bit more math, but the fact that you don't have shifting dice pools and shifting difficulties to me kind of makes it yeah. simpler. You got one, you, you roll one die, except, right. except for the botch dice where you roll a bunch of those, but that's separate enough. So let, let, let's explain that. And by that, I mean, thrice great, please explain that. So you have a simple die or a stress die, and this is just a 1d10, and then you've got an ease factor, which is for World of Darkness players, your difficulty, that ranges from 0 to 24 or higher. So there's no dice pools, like you mentioned, and that single d10 you roll, and then you add whatever stats, so you've got sort of your attributes, which are like intelligence or charisma or things like that. That, that That's all structured very similarly to the World of Darkness. So if you see an Ars Magica character sheet, I think you'll pretty much be able to figure it out. So attributes are called qualities, and then you've got skills, 1d10 plus your quality, 
plus your skill. And then if it meets or exceeds the ease, ease factor, you succeed. And if you greatly exceed the ease factor, you succeed spectacularly. If not, you fail. And if you roll a zero on a stress die, only on a stress die, then you roll for a botch and then you'd roll another D10. And if you get a zero, then you actually botch. There are other cases where you may roll more D10s like you were mentioning, but that, that's more the, that's sort of the, the quick and dirty system. So, so as, as far as uh, crunch goes, if you can master that core system, the game is pretty easy. There are a lot of mechanics that differ, especially when it comes to casting magic. But like I said, if you can master that single dice roll system, then they're pretty easy to, to pick up and start playing with. This is very similar to me to the venture system in Invisible Sun. Take a drink. Uh, the difference here is <laughs> our, Ars Magica doesn't have you deduct from the difficulty you're adding to a roll. The other thing it does that's kind of interesting is you have the difficulty, which is independent of how bad is it if you fail. So this allows you to create something that is very hard, but failure isn't going to be that bad, and something that might be simpler, but failure could be spectacular. Spectacular. And as Thrice Great said, you can have a botch pool where you, you're rolling a number of dice and the more ones that come up, the worse your failure is. The other thing that's kind of interesting about this game is in several of the cases where it talks about what botching looks like, sometimes it is very obvious, like if you're climbing a mountain or something like that. But in, say, for instance, social engagements of some sort, there is a much wider space of what is considered a botch. In the game, a failure here seems to be, okay, you failed. No harm, no foul. More of a time and resources waster. But it gives a variety of other things, and that pops up in the magic system as well, that sometimes the game also says that sometimes a botch will be strangely beneficial. Magic be weird, which I kind of yes. appreciated. It gives you a little space as a storyteller to be like, that's the way the game lets you fudge the dice. So whenever I look at a mechanical system for a game, I think, what is this trying to emulate? Is What are the dice and their randomness trying to describe? And I think Ars Magica is trying to, it's not Dungeons and Dragons or Pathfinder. I think it's trying to emulate sort of an Arthurian romance or a fairy tale or um, some kind of folk story rather than sort of the high power of Dungeons and Dragons or the tragic romance of the world of darkness depending on how you play that so 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 i i think in that way you know because you have the the two qualifiers for what kind of die you roll a stress die or a simple die it, it does allow for l less tragedy because th that that's why the world of darkness has you know you can a, a simple roll can turn into a botch which can be extremely tragic and lead to nuclear war or a blood hunt or something. The fates are much crueler, I feel like, in the world of darkness than they are in Ars Magica. Ars Magica is a pretty positive and I would say more lighthearted game than uh, Ascension is. I, I think some of my players who were new to Mage definitely were sometimes a little frustrated with Mage's kind of open-ended magic system. I think Ars Magica resolves a lot of those frustrations. I, I, I think even though you're not quite as powerful coming out i think you, you certainly are able to do a lot more i think and it's a little there's a little less pressure in all of that we talked about the mundane actions so how is magic done from an in-game perspective and what do you have to do to cast an effect I love this question because as Charles Siegel's always pointing out the M20 focus system is 
is not not quite all there. It's it's a good start, but it certainly leaves me wanting a, a little more. Although it is, I, I do find it useful. Hermetic magic is pretty cleanly described in Ars Magica. So to cast it, you're going to use hand gestures, vocal incantations, usually in Latin, and special ingredients. So anybody familiar with the Vancey and magic style of Dungeons and Dragons, it's pretty similar to that. Like going back to what I said earlier, magic doesn't ask you what you believe. The exception of third edition, it just defaults to this mythic medieval paradigm. And like you mentioned earlier, it's sort of a quasi-scientific or as scientific as you could really get for the medieval period. The magic just works implicitly under these unstated mythic medieval rules. So how do you do it? Gestures, vocal incantations. You have what's known as techniques, which are your equivalent to arte, and they're uh, creo, intelligo, muto, perdo, so creation, um, understanding, changing, destroying, and controlling, right? So that that's sort of what you're doing to whatever object you're manipulating. And then you've got your forms, which are your spheres. That would be your equivalent of spheres. And you've got animal, aquam, orum, corpus, urbum, ignum, imaginum, mentem, terum, and vim. So that those are animal bodies, water, air, human bodies, plants, fire, uh, illusions or the imagination, the mind, earth, and then vim is kind of sort of like prime, kind of. The forms divide things up differently, and there's no real equivalent in Ars Magica for time or entropy, but you can duplicate most of those effects. For example, there's no correspondence magic, but you can still create Hermes portals using a, a Creo Terum spell, right? So there's nothing to say that you couldn't manipulate time or entropy, except you can't go beyond the limits of hermetic magic. But what I like about this magic system is that it really breaks up what you're doing sort of with your with your power stat into these five categories and it allows your mage to emphasize one of those or several of them which i think is uh, something that's kind of lacking in ascension you know you can have certain concepts or certain paradigms that really emphasize understanding or changing things or creating things but but maybe have a prohibition against destroying things, right? Or changing them too much. So I really like the techniques. It, it's something that, if there, there's a few things that I really wish they'd ported over to Mage and the techniques are, are definitely one of them. I think that that would really simplify the magic system in many ways for new players because they can say, I want to control this thing and then you've got the spheres, which I think work pretty well actually. And that's your object that you're creating. You made mention of limits. What are the limitations on what you can do as a MAGA? Ah, I love hermetic limits, right? Um, because in Mage, we talk about this on the Discord all the time. Like, can you do this or can't you do that? And it's a lot of times, yes, maybe, no. There are very few actual limits. Are, are there any limits in Ascension that are actually mentioned? Do you know? Uh, in terms of hard limits, the closest thing we have are there are effects that have no examples given. So especially if we include, for instance, Masters of the Art, if we, pardon me, if we exclude Masters of the Art, we don't have a way to create an avatar. We don't have a way to create, say, a true pocket universe. The things where the game says no are very small. You can cobble it together and you just need to be comfortable coming up with 30 or 40 successes. These aren't 
in-game limits, right? Like mages don't talk about these mm-hmm. as limits, right? Whereas when, uh, within Ars Magica, there are direct limits that the Order of Hermes is explicitly aware of. So the two major limits, which are the divine, hermetic magic cannot affect the divine, right? So the church is almost totally immune from hermetic magic. Now, there, there may be ways to cheat that with laboratory fermentation or other supernatural powers, but generally speaking, no, no, no touching the, the any any of the the religious sects. And that's not just Christianity either. That's Islam. That's Judaism. I don't know if it if it uh, counts as paganism as much. Pagan stuff tends to be a, a little more on the fringes of Ars Magica. It focuses on um, the major face of that period. There's also the limit of essential nature, and th- this is very interesting. So magic that alters a thing's essential nature must be maintained or otherwise it ceases, right? So this is totally different from Ascension where you can turn vampires into lawn chairs. In Ars Magica, you can turn a vampire into a lawn chair, but if you don't maintain that spell, then they turn back into a vampire and they might be mad. There are also lesser limits. Um, This is another favorite one of mine, aging. Hermetic magic cannot halt or reverse natural aging. It can only slow it down or remove its effects. And this is a really important part of the game because longevity potions, which are mentioned within the Order of Hermes tradition books, but they don't really necessarily get into how they're used. And I always felt that was a missed opportunity because ostensibly mages can extend their lives you know, into the centuries, but we don't ever really get any great mechanics on that. So the fact that uh, hermetic magic can't halt or reverse natural aging is a, is a big limit there. It's totally different from the world of darkness mages. Arcane connections are really, really important in Ars Magica. If you don't have an arcane came connection, you can't affect somebody that you can't sense. So if somebody's in the next town over and you have no way to sense them, you can't use magic on them unless you've got some kind of arcane connection. You can't create anything permanent without raw vis. So vis or vis is essentially quintessence. You can definitely see that that's where they were drawing this idea, drawing this idea of quintessence from was from vis. It's kind of magical energy that's used in spell casting. So there's the limit of energy. You cannot restore fatigue levels or confidence. Confidence is more or less willpower. Fatigue levels are are kind of um, uh, injury levels like you see in World of Darkness. So hermetic magic can't restore or any of those. In the infernal, this is one of my favorite limits too. Infernal magic and the infernal cannot be detected using intelligomagic. It simply reflects what the demon wants you to see. So if you're using your, your mystic gumshoe powers to try to suss out infernalists, you're going to have your, your own fantasies or fears cast back on you. So it can be the infernal can be very tricky. And I particularly like this limit because one of the questions I always ask is, is why infernalism? Like, like what's the real motivation there? Right. And if you have something like this limit in place where all you're seeing is really an echo chamber, but maybe don't realize it, you know, because this this is even even if you're aware of this limit, it could be very slippery. I think that that really plays into why somebody might fall for some infernal scheme. Another cool limit is the lunar sphere. So you can't affect the moon or anything above it. So anything below the moon you can affect, but anything the moon or above cannot be affected. 
I think is really interesting, particularly in the Ascension, the Ascension context where we have, if you want it, like bananas, gonzo, cosmic space battles with ships and uh, dream speakers out there, you know, using their auras or whatever to fly around the deep umbra. With wizards, uh, not so much. You're stuck below the lunar sphere. Ars Magica has souls. <laughs> Mages cannot create an immortal soul. Only, only God can do that. Another limit, hermetic magic cannot affect the passage of time and it can't affect the past or, and, and it can only affect the future by making changes in the present. And this includes scrying. So that really changes the order of Hermes transmission of history. In Ascension, I always wonder why there's so much ambiguity about history, because you can just use time magic to go back, you know, pretty far to look, but in Ars Magica, you can't do that so much. Another interesting limit is true feeling. So hermetic magic cannot affect love, friendship, or faith, right? So somebody who's in love, has strong faith or friendship, hermetic magic can't touch any of that, can't manipulate it, can't destroy it, can't create it. And then Vis is all associated with an art or a technique kind of similar to Revise's resonance when it comes to quintessence. So if you're using one kind of vis, like animal vis, you can't use that for an aquam spell. And then there's warping. Magic or high auras cause weird changes. And hermetic magic can do very little about any of that warping that goes on. What do you think we should do in Mage the Ascension with these limits? Because one of the ideas that exists in at least one or more editions of, the, of Ars Magica is that the minor limits can be transcended. Like there there was f previously a, a limit against magic defenses, but the Parma Magica uh, circumvents that. And that's kind of its deal. Uh, I like the idea of lesser limits being taken on as a paradigm element that, for instance, the book would give you a bunch of options. And part of your paradigm is you take four or five lesser limits. So for instance, your paradigm may not have a notion of reincarnation or resurrection. Your paradigm may not have a notion of material transmutation or spontaneous generation or something like that. And it makes perfect sense to me that a, a paradigm should include a list of things you can't do that maybe at a retail five, you get to buy off one or something like that. Why do you think the lesser limits are so interesting and why should we, and how can we take those into mage? I think they're interesting because restrictions create interesting stories. If you can't do something, you either have to find a way to circumvent it, or you have to find a way to just get rid of it altogether, right? And if there's one thing mages do, mages like to do, it's fuck around and find out, right? Particularly in Ascension. Like, I feel like that's something that Ascension really excels or excels at, that Ars Magica does in its own very scholarly way. But Ascension is like kind of what you were describing earlier. Magic is fuck around and find out, right? And if you have limits, then you've got landmarks. And landmarks sort of help you find out what you can and can't do, and then how to break those rules. So rules are meant to be broken. That's the whole point of magic, right? That's part of why it excites me. I also think particularly for something like Dark, Age, Dark Ages Mage or even Sorcerer's Crusade, where the consensus, uh, things are not quite as defined. There's a lot of uh, discussion about what the soul is. Are there angels? Can God move an unmovable object, right? Like not as much is known, right? So would mages know that they can do everything that the spheres can describe? I guess it depends on the chronicle that you're running. Even in a modern day game, do mages realize that they can do everything that a sphere describes or would it be beneficial to create some paradigmatic limits that keep mages in a, a particular lane? Not necessarily to restrain them, 
But I think it makes for interesting story purposes. If you have a celestial chorus member who says resurrection is anathema, that's the that is the province of the divine only. We can ask the divine, we can ask God to resurrect somebody, but uh, uh, even though maybe that's possible, it would be you know heresy to do so. Whereas the the euthanatoi or the order of Hermes might feel very differently about yeah. it. Yeah, that's you a know? very hold so, my beer so, moment. <laughs> <laughs> it is a very hold my beer moment, right? So if you have these limitations, it gives them something to to kind of butt up against and kind of push at to try to move through those boundaries. I think boundaries are fun. You know, they create interesting stories, um, and and they're they're great grist for the for the um, paradigmatic conflict mill, which, you know, we we get. It's implied that the traditions often argue and don't agree about a lot, but it's never explicitly stated, you know, about what they do and don't agree on. I always would have liked um, something like Vampire's Path of, of Enlightenment for each of the nine traditions and the conventions, because I, I think that would sort of create a belief system that players can kind of fit into, and it would give them a better sense of like, oh, this is what this tradition does and doesn't believe. Maybe that would be too arbitrary. Maybe that would be true cut and dry. I don't know, but it would certainly be interesting to create something like that for a chronicle and see how it works, you know, fuck around and find out. One of the things that I find interesting is if each additional point of arete did something mechanically where you could, at each arete increase, you could get rid of one of your limits, you could shed the requirement of one of your one or more of your instruments, or you could double down on some aspect of your magic. So the idea that as you gain enlightenment, you can kind of go down practitioner paths of some sort. So take paths of enlightenment, but you can kind of do a little bit of mixing and matching. There wouldn't quite be a hierarchy of sins, but there would be uh, terms that you would gain on how the universe works. One of the conversations I had with Jason Pitt was that you would write up a few sentences on how your character thought the world worked. And every time you got a new point of arete, one of the adjectives or nouns in one of the sentences, you could kind of modify or erase. Um, so if you had a chorister that said, all magic comes from the divine, you could change that to all magic comes from the divine and or their agents or something like that as you gained arete. I think that's really great because it actually creates more of a mechanical incentive. I think it's more descriptive and more lively story-wise, you know, like sure you gain an arete point and you get to lose an instrument, but what does that really mean? What does that mean to your character? And if you if you have some defined limits, whether they're externally applied or whether they're internal, I think it means something more if you're transcending those limits, right? Or, or pushing through them because suddenly you're transgressing something that you thought was fundamentally true. And it turns out maybe it's not so true. You know, maybe it all is all just a feather in a elephant's trunk. Maybe it's turtles all the way down. Who knew? So- what kind of guidance, guidelines does the system provide? Are there are there versions of rotes? How do you build effect scale? Like, what are canned spells in this game? This is another thing that I think mage storytellers in particular, or mage players who really like building rotes, this is something you should really 
take a page from Ars Magica from. Ars Magica is filled with spells. There are so many spells. There, you know, all the supplements have new spells. But if you look at them, what they look like is you've got a technique and a form, and those are listed. And that basically sort of describes your effect. You're not mixing and matching quite like you do with the sphere system. So it's always going to be one technique and one form, and that's it. That is somewhat more limited than what we're used to in Ascension, but I think that it prevents sphere bloat like we often sometimes see in Ascension. Like I remember even in the early days, I would look at stuff and I'd be like, wow, these routes are cool, but I would never be able to cast these. No beginning character would be able to cast them. Like it's a lot of correspondence for or higher or whatever. Whereas this, you've got a wide range of examples of rotes or what's known as formulaic magic that you can cast right out of the box. I think that that's really great if you're looking for a good spell design or you're looking to for an example of how to design rotes, Ars Magica is a good place to look. Does magic change a place over time? We have the idea that places can pick up resonance. Are there weird magic places in the world of Ars Magica? There are tons. Yeah. The realms and as well as magic and the magic realm can warp places. So weird things can happen. There are fairy glens that lead to fairy realms and there is there are the hells and there are the heavens and all of those are real and can be experienced in the, the mythic medieval setting of Ars Magica. There are always magical places like Stonehenge or other legendary places. Ars Magica is a great setting for any of that. And if you look at some of the covenant books from um, previous editions or the realms of power, like uh, divine, magic, fairy, Infernal, they're all going to give you a bunch of places that your wizards can potentially adventure to where grogs will be eaten by something or taken away with the fairies or say something mean to someone. (laughs) Are there spirits or bygones or mythic creatures in Ars Magica? So I mentioned the realms of power. Ars Magica mainly focuses on creatures from the infernal, divine, or the fairy realms. There's also some what we'd call bygones. They're from the magic realm. Stuff like dragons or ghosts or anything like that might appear. But you demons, angels, different kind of fairies. The fairies especially, there's a lot of different fairy creatures. And I think Changing the Dreaming fans would really enjoy the fifth edition treatment of the realms of fairy because it does deal with some of the Arcadian questions in a way that's not quite as gonzo as um, Dark Ages Fey is. So I think people will like that. Um, there's also uh, Jinn over in, in Mythic Islam. Each of those realms of power contains a bestiary, and even the core book has some bestiary in there. So there's there's plenty of, um, of crazy medieval beasts hanging around. If folks are looking to do stuff, uh, if they're looking to draw inspiration, if you start Googling around for medieval creatures, the Middle Ages had a lot of really bananas beliefs. I, on one of the podcasts that I listened to, they mentioned, I forget the name of the creature, but it's basically sort of a rabbit creature with horns that poops fire. <laughs> I don't know if that's included in Ars Magica, but that's the kind of thing that I would love to include in my game. I, th- I feel like Jacob Klinder made mention of that when we were talking about Dark Ages Mage. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, it, yeah, I had yeah, heard about it before he mentioned it, but then he mentioned it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's just such a weird period. Like the sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. And that's definitely the case with the medieval, medieval period. 
Is there paradox or something similar? What prevents you from just going gonzo with your magic all the time? There's no paradox, um, but what you've got, uh, you've got two things basically. Well, three. So first, if you botch, like we mentioned before, you botch your magic, your magic goes out of control. So th this is more ambivalent than paradoxes. Sometimes your spell, it turns around on you. Sometimes it's more powerful than you want. There's also what's known as warping, which are weird effects that are kind of similar to paradox flaws but they're they're more permanent and then there's also wizard's twilight which is probably one of my favorite systems in ars magica if you're looking for a system to to run for quiet ars magica's twilight's twist system is the way to go so what what distinguishes it from quiet is that quiet's usually discussed in in pretty negative terms it's a it's a pretty scary state that mages get into where they get delusional with wizard's twilight it's a little it's a it's a little more like a seeking actually and if you can successfully succeed in getting out of quiet it can actually aid you in your study of magic so in that way this is a little cul-de-sac that's a little more similar to ascension's magic and that it's not, it's not 100 scholarly magic's still weird magic's still mysterious you know, and like, and and the roots of it are still not known, even though the Order of Hermes has made as made it as much of a science as is possible. I I love Wizards Twilight. That was one of the things that I was really surprised that they didn't pull in from Ars Magica, because it, it it really is quite an excellent fit, and the mechanics are not complicated at all at all, How and yet can have really powerful impacts. Twilight is something that you actually roll for, right? So you mess up a spell, and if the circumstances are right, then you have to roll for Twilight. So it's going to, again, going to be that D10 plus there's a couple of other skills and a quality that you roll with. And if you meet the ease factor, then if you're successful, you can avoid the twilight and choose not to go into it. However, you can choose to go into the quiet, the, the twilight if you want to. If it's failed, you enter twilight. But even when you're in it, even if you fail that twilight roll, you're forced into it. You can make other roles to try to comprehend it, right? So you're you're in this crazy mystic state of of sort of quasi magic, right? But you can start to make roles to like to like figure out what's going on. It's it's kind of like if you smoke too much sativa at that party, right? You can <laughs> you can make that role to try to figure out how to get to the couch before you the 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 floor magnets kick in, right? So it's kind of similar to that. You can comprehend it. And if it's comprehended, it can be beneficial. So there are also roles uh, where you can gain techniques or better understandings or learn spells or just have a better understanding of magic. However, if you botch your role to get into Twilight, then you enter and you cannot comprehend it. And that's when the warping comes in. At that point, the you roll for your warping duration. So it can be bad. Twilights can be bad, but they can also be really illuminating. And I like that. And I think that that's implied within Ascension, but we just don't have a lot of rules for that. You know, it's basically just the backlash and then you get your quiet rating and it's sort of everything else you kind of figure out. And I like this system because uh, I said this earlier, it's, it's really not complicated. You know, it's a success, a fail, botch. And then you've got a couple of outcomes there that branch, but it's it's not it's not super mechanical. And I could easily I could easily see an adaptation for Ascension for this. And the thing it does is it lets us do a few interesting things. One, when you're in Wizards Twilight, you kind of poof out. You are it's in Mage, we kind of get the idea mm -hmm. that you're in something like a catatonic state. So the question is if it persists for a while 
who feeds you, which is something the game never really answered. You are in a twilight realm of some sort. You are going through a mystery. It's also something you can lean into that if a hermetic is like, yo, this is building up, let's try and get through it. Uh, To me, this is the equivalent of someone recognizing that they are losing touch with reality and just saying, hey, let's deal with this now on my own terms, or alternatively saying, let's try and get through this as quickly as possible, because if I don't in 10 minutes, my friends are boned. (laughs) As the warping increases, the twilight gets longer, and there is the potentiality of final twilight, which is you blink Mm -hmm. out and you kind of and you kind of never return and the idea of coming back from quiet even if it is a realm in your own mind and your eye color has suddenly changed or you have a different accent or a paradigm element is different that to me is is kind of fascinating and in honor of missing guest host Chess Kellner one of the ideas from aberrant is to advance your aberrant abilities your superpower abilities in the game aberrant you have to go down their taint or corruption track further so I like the idea in Mage that if you really want to increase your Rite, there's a certain level of quiet you're going to have to be able to wrestle with before you can come back with wisdom. And I kind of like the idea of merging those two, that the reason there may not be a lot of masters and archmasters is people aren't necessarily willing to take the risk of going into this magical state and never coming back again, because as you get to more esoteric or remote levels, that journey becomes much more difficult. It also allows you to create a character that's good at twilight or good at quiet. And within Mage, we don't really get the notion that people are necessarily experts in it, except to say that Mind 3 exists and Mind 4 exists as a way to plumb the depths of someone else's quiet, and we don't really have mechanisms to to navigate that. So just the systemization and bringing it in, I I do kind of like. I think you could also look at this, if, if you wanted to systemize a seeking, I think that this is also a really good example of that, because it is somewhere between the illumination and lesson and, and sort of mystery play of the seeking and sort of the, the potential madness for quiet, of quiet. So I also wonder if, you know, for certain chronicles, particularly with the Order of Hermes, because they have their degree system, which which doesn't necessarily demark wisdom per se, but but you have to achieve certain arcane skills or acumen before you're allowed into that degree, right? And and what if these degrees were actually mysteries? You know, what 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 if there were actually mysteries to be inducted into those degrees? That it was more than just gaining power, right? That to to attain you know a seventh degree or to become a a, a magiste scale, you actually have to enter into quiet and and pass a kind of test or emerge with a certain kind of wisdom, right? You know, and I could see the traditions all having some kind of version of that. Um, that that was one of the things that was always missing. I felt from Ascension is that what are the traditions and the conventions' relationship to quiet? Don't get stereotypes or attitudes towards it. It it just seems to be something that in game they're just like in denial about. And I I have to say that I I think maybe a, a lot of mages might be denial about it, but. I think there are a lot of nutty mages, particularly tradition mages, who would be really, really curious about what's in quiet. Where do you go? Is it just the mind or is it the avatar? Or are are you becoming closer to your avatar or farther away from it? I think Ars Magica might answer one of those questions. Uh, You know, the the sort of uh, the disappearing into quiet, right? Like, to me, I I think that that they're sinking they're withdrawing into the realm of magic, right? Itself. And that's why you emerge with this kind of wisdom. So that that could be instructive for an Ascension game in another way, even though there's no realm of magic per se. 
And you make mention of the realm of magic. The idea in Ars Magica is that the magic realm is kind of maybe what the equivalent of heaven represents for the divine or hell for the infernal or Arcadia for the fae is that there is this infinitely intertwined collection of connections that you are tugging on when magic is done. Uh, During Twilight, you are temporarily there and interacting with this realm in various ways can cause things to uh, can cause things to happen so there is a a realm of of magic uh, twilight can occur in the places between and this very much reminds me of mage the awakening in terms of how the cosmos works but the idea that hermetics and the hermetics already have this framework. We call it the city of Pymander. So I wouldn't be surprised if during Twilight someone could say, Thrice Great is exploring Pymander. And that is just the euphemism for being lost in the grand city of, of ultimate power. And that that then becomes the metaphor that you can use to navigate it. And each tradition or each paradigm is going to have a, a different way of doing it. But it gives you kind of a more concrete place. The closest we get is what each tradition thinks about the marauders sometimes and that's that's about it I, I would certainly love to see it and if we ever got a if we ever got a book of madness for m20 that to me is kind of one of the things i would want to see in it more of a treatment of quiet and and maybe less of a treatment of some of the other things that have historically been in um the books of madness you know your suggestion certainly colors kind of first edition and early second edition ideas of ascension right because th- that was the hermetic ideal right is to draw down the city of pymander where the the learned rule over the masters and you know are sort of helping people to come up to their level uh, ostensibly at least right so if that's literally what they're talking about then what is it exactly that they're drawing down and where are they drawing it down from like where do seekings happen we don't know is it just in the mind is there some special umbral realm is it is this a fourth dimension that isn't mentioned you know ours magica doesn't answer those questions either but I think that it's a really fascinating question to to ask. And if other players are like me and are fascinated by quiet and uh, are just really wanting more information about this magical madness, Ars Magica might be a place to look for some inspiration for that. Our second t-shirt, Pymander, get on my level. Like, Pymander, gommel. No and ascend. (laughs) So... All of this is underlied by a somewhat unique view of how a chronicle or a story works. The game revolves around troop play. What is it and what kind of things do you play? I'm such a troop play nerd. I love troop play. I, I've done a lot of troop play. So troop play is, uh, and, and actually I, when I was doing background for this, uh, Ars Magica are, is the game that pioneered troop play. So for folks who are unfamiliar with it, I feel like most World of Darkness players are familiar with it because it, it's mentioned in, particularly in the second edition books, I feel like. Most haven't experimented with it. Troop play, uh, you can do it in a couple of different ways where everyone makes a, makes a, a, a magus they make a companion and they they make a grog and they play all three of them or they make a magus play that and then the grogs and companions are pooled and anybody can play them. It does make for a more complicated game. So you have to be kind of up for having a lot of player, uh, a lot of characters swap in and out. But what's cool about it is that you can really focus on somebody's magical development or a grog or a companion, but mainly I think it was so the wizards could be doing things and um, while they're doing things, 
the other the other players will have something to do. So let's say they have um, three players and the two of the wizards want to go study in their wizard's tower, right? You know, some rolls can be made, but there's not a lot going on there. You take your third wizard out for an adventure and they take, uh, and then somebody plays a covenant companion and maybe a couple of grogs or a pool of grogs that go along with them, right? So then, then you've got support, then you've got um, people to cook the food and do, you know, wash your wizard's robe and stuff. They've got something else to do. So so you can you can take that side quest that is sometimes happen one on one and bring the other players into those side quests that might be a little a little more personal. I think it also gives you an opportunity to play somebody that's not magical and kind of see how the effects of magic impact them in a more dynamic way than your storyteller might be able to offer you. You know, storytellers are always hectic, got all these NPCs and you're, you're part judge, part actor, part scene dresser. So if you've got somebody else playing that grog, then you've got all this natural tension. I think it takes off some of the pressure from the storyteller. So I love troop play. I think folks should give it a shot. It works very, very well in the world of darkness. Over the pandemic, I ran an Order of Hermes game and it was all troop play and it worked out very well. The grogs were always stars. It was, it was just, it was a really a lot of fun. So give it a go. Yeah, I think one of my favorite parts is the fact that there can be a pool of grogs and you just play it out where someone is like, hey, today I will be, we need someone to cover um, Melody, the the long-suffering accountant that deals with our group shenanigans and kind of hides the weird things that we do. Who wants to cover her for this session? And Mark raises and (laughs) and is like, okay, I, I will take care of this interaction. And it lets players who are often otherwise convivial be antagonistic. You get to explore a different emotional space for a little bit, or maybe take out your frustrations on another player uh, in a a small way and take turns kind of building the lore of the groups around you. In a mage game, if you're not at a giant chantry, where do you see the opportunities for this kind of troop play? Most of the Ars Magica games center around the Covenant, but they don't necessarily have to. I mean, you could have them out questing in the wilderness. You could have them on adventures. So you don't necessarily need to focus on the Covenant, but the Covenant, I think, is what what I like about the Covenant is that it gives you an excuse for all of these diverse people to be together. The The Covenant is the unifying, it's the glue that holds everybody together. The Companion is there for a reason, the Grog is there for a reason, the Wizard is there for a reason. And it also creates um, a, enough structure, right? Because sometimes if you're creating a Chantry, like, why am I here? Why would I even join this Chantry? You know, right? Like, sometimes you have to do a little bit of a more work. With Ars Magica, it's simple. You don't even have to have your traveler's tavern. You, you have your covenant instead. And these folks basically live at the covenant and you just go from there. You don't even have to play at the covenant. You can go on the adventure. But So what is it like being part of a covenant? This is where it's um, very similar to the world of darkness. So the wizards are always politicking, although the, the politics among the Order of Hermes aren't um, quite as complicated or as, I, I think, pernicious, I guess is the way they would describe it, or, or slippery, maybe. Slippery is a better word, you know, using, using the, the, the milas, the quicksand, right? But, there's always, but hermetics are, are an institution, and they have a government, and they have laws, so the hermetics are always politicking and and exchanging and trying to to get this and that 
so there, there's always opportunities for the wizards to either cooperate or to compete or to even conflict with one another. So I think that would be familiar with most folks. Um, most covenants take are outside in the wilderness because of the gift. Wizards are disturbing to regular people, so they tend to build their covenants far away from cities. But some don't. The House Yarbaton, as we mentioned earlier, um, they have city covenants. And then you've got your strict social hierarchy. So if you want to get into sort of your medieval version of Downton Abbey, you can definitely do that. So you've got your wizards who are running everything, but you've also got your opportunity for companions and grogs and the wizards employ all kinds of different people and their motivations for being there tend to be diverse. You could have women who want to be scholars. You could have people who might be touched by magic and can't fit into regular society. Um, you might have um, people who are um, maybe perhaps running from the law or the church and are seeking refuge there in exchange for housing and doing work for the covenant. So living in a covenant, I, I think, is is interesting, maybe slightly dangerous, probably never dull because it's full of wizards. What is seasonal play and what are kind of the seasons of play? Ah, this is another thing I love about Ars Magica. So seasonal play is essentially it lightly systematizes downtime, mm -hmm. right? So let's say your character wants to increase their technique or develop a new spell or make a magical object or bind a familiar or go on an adventure. Those all take at least a season, if not more. So let's say you're building a masterwork talisman that could take two seasons, that could take four seasons. That means that your wizard is pretty much doing all of that over this course of time, which gives the other players a chance to go out and have adventures and do other things. So that's what the seasonal play is. It, it systematizes downtime and it describes what mages do when they're not adventuring, when they're not maging. Right. And I love that. And I, that was something I always missed from Ascension. I think it's briefly kind of sort of described in Guide to the Traditions, but it, it never quite gets there. So if you're looking for a, a way to to like justify and have the players really earn a raising of a sphere a raising of an arte or researching a particular topic, you can say this is going to take you a season to do that. So a season is literally a season. So it's basically sort of like a, a, all summer or all spring. And you can kind of figure out what months that how many months that takes. But um, that's what seasonal play is. It's really, really great. I would highly recommend it for Mage of the Ascension. We did it in our Order of Hermes game, and it worked really, really well. And it really encourages to recognize long passage of time and to compress that, that if everyone wants to do research at the same time, suddenly you jump forward for a year. And as you mentioned, that if someone's wizard, and, and this is a way of managing the spotlight, if you have a player that has utter mastery of the magic system and you want someone else to be the cool wizard for a session or two, well, that character's wizard is undertaking this magical research and that's going to take six months. So while we investigate the strange fairy ring that peasants seem to keep falling into, someone else gets to be the lead wizard guy for a period of time. And this is a good mechanic that lets you deal with power imbalances within a group gracefully. It lets you, again, explore kind of other places. And since longevity is a thing that you can't entirely dodge and magic takes a while in a lot of cases, it in a strange way forces you to contend with mortality, which I thought was kind of interesting. That is one of the big themes of Ars Magica, much more so than in our Ascension. 
it's kind of implied, you know, a lot of those old archmages are kind of nutty, but we don't really find out how they got that way. You know, if you're spending season upon season toiling in your laboratory alone, or maybe with an apprentice or another wizard, and you're suffering warping or quiet, like it, it gives you an opportunity to tell that story. But not only that, you're telling the story of how the mage got the power that they got. You know, in Ars Magica, tools aren't such a big deal. But in something like Ascension, how did they get that unique focus? They could take a season and that's how they got it, or two seasons, right? I, I think that's a great opportunity. You know, if, they, if they're researching and they spend a season building the, the wand of Mars, right? And that's their unique forces, their unique focus for forces. I think that's a really cool story. You know, I think that's really interesting. It gives the players a, an opportunity to really invest in and dig deep, uh, not only into their paradigms, but in how and why they have the practices, paradigms, and instruments that they have. The differences between the additions, and you kind of poked at this earlier, is Revised does kind of emphasize that a lot of magic is very time-consuming, that you are probably often practicing quite a bit. And Second Edition and M20 are much lighter on this. It focuses on improvisation and and kind of mundane abilities that fuel magic. And I always thought it was more interesting that whenever your character does an improvised effect, you kind of do a flashback to the thing they did during their downtime or research that was remarkably similar to this. And that is why they can pull this effect out of nowhere. This is the improvisation of a beatboxer or a DJ, someone who has spent thousands of hours honing their craft and not the improvisation that a child does when trying to come up with an excuse for something that happens uh, to kind of work well. It also helps explain kind of the fact that in a lot of our games, depending on where we set the knobs, a year of in-game adventuring could get characters seemingly to arch mastery if each session is a week and they're getting four XP per at the end of a calendar year, you've got 200 XP or something like that. <laughs> which can get you real far, where in Ars Magica it says, no, study is kind of different. And let's talk about that next. How does the game handle research and experience? Yeah, I mean, research is a huge part of the game. That's largely what wizards spend their time on. You know, they spend a lot of time in their towers and in their laboratories experimenting with magic. And from there, spells can be developed, and that's how you learn your techniques and forms. But, you know, going back to the seasonal thing, that's you spend a season doing that, right? So it with Ars Magica, the amount of magic that you can create and do and excel at, you're always racing against the clock, right? Because you can't you can't manipulate time. You can have a longevity potion, but you can slow things down. But eventually, age and decrepitude, which are also systematized in the game, come and get you. So mages spend a lot of time in their laboratories trying to advance, but it takes a long time. So mainly characters gain experience, uh, at least the wizards do, by spending a season in study. And then there's a little formula. Ars Magica is big on formulas. And uh, that's how they gain their experience points. But there are several other ways. You can be exposed to something and you can also go on adventures. And there's a little formula that the, the system uses to assign XP based on each of those. So the XP system is a little less freeform than we're used to in the world of darkness, where role-playing is rewarded as much as you know brave acts or interesting deeds or something like that. Those are also rewarded here, but the book definitely, uh, Ars Magica definitely emphasizes character action over player action as far as this XP system goes. 
One of the other things you had made mention of was uh, kind of the the covenant process. How do you create a covenant? Like, does that get its own character creation step when you're assembling your troop? It does. Yeah. It's kind of like a functional version of what's in the book of chantries, <laughs> um, <laughs> which, which, and I say that with love. I love the book of chantries. It's absolutely one of my favorite books. Um, it, it, I just find it so inspirational, but it can be a little lacking in the mechanics department, but, but the general framework that you see in Book of Chantries is, I think, still holds up pretty good. I, I've used it for my games, and I have a neat little system that I use that I adapted from Book of Chantries. So, so that might have been a little bit of a read, but it was a read with love. <laughs> Um, but it's very similar to that insofar as um, you've got covenants and there's seasons like you've seen. So like a spring covenant is brand new. Uh, a winter covenant is old and powerful, but um, full of uh, politics and problems and warpings and things. Um, you've also got, you've got something that people will, will be familiar with is you've got virtues and flaws and covenants can have these things as well. So they can have particularly strong auras or fairy allies or um, other kinds of odds and ends that distinguish them. Um, they can have ties to the mortal world or better stores or things like that. So there's a lot of options. And I think that, that the Ars Magica covenant creation system is pretty adaptable to the world of darkness i prefer it to the the covenant system creation that's in is it in dark ages mage or sorcerer crusade i can't remember i don't one of them had a chantry one of them has a chantry creation system Mm. it was okay um you know i some people like it i I prefer the ars magica one it's it's simpler and it really focuses on like the building itself right and like and sort of in sort of its relationships to others and it's sort of magical properties so covenants are a go and one of the things I really like about covenant creation is in a lot of cases, it very much bakes story hooks into it that your group yes. can set up in a weird space that has weird stuff happening. And you're like, well, there's already weird stuff here. Why don't we set up? There's already a portal here, or there's already a strange group of creatures here. Let's go with that. And it's very specific to say, if your covenant loses something, there sh- it should create a hook to get it back. So if one of your laboratories is infested with, eventually becomes infested with ghosts, there should be a way uh, to deal with that if you lose access to a particular portal or something like that part of its loss should result in you being able to to get it back again and and the fact that chantries have uh, covenants have seasons allows you to very much pick do we want to deal with the difficulties of getting something up and coming do we want to do with something at the height of its power do we want to deal with internal politics or do we want to have a reflective game about uh, trying to revitalize this place or alternatively dealing with the downfall of a of a covenant or the death of magic even maybe chantries and covenants i feel should always be a character in your game they may or may not speak i think that they're always a character in and of themselves and and the environment that the mages or wizards do their work in can really set the tone and atmosphere for Chantry. I think that also covenants allow for a stronger place for consors or companions or grogs in your game. That's one of the things that I think that uh, Ascension, you know, we have rules for them, but we don't necessarily know what it is that they do. You know, free tradition. Like, what what is it that they do? Do they do they have accountants? Do does the Order of Hermes have accountants? Does the Akashiana have car washers? Like, <laughs> what is what is it that these companions do besides uh, kick ass and hang out with mages? Right. So, 
if you've, if you've got this issue where you've creep mortals out as a wizard and you've, uh, and your grain, the, the person that brings you your grain died of the plague, then you need to send out an emissary to go find this, somebody else to get your, your grain for you. So going to back to what you were saying, as far as like Chantry is providing stories and losing or being cut off or wizards acting badly can impact the world around them. And so they're going to need grogs and companions to help them out with that. And there's also plenty of story to be had that way, you know, magic's impact or the proximity of magic to the rest of the people in this mythic medieval setting. Because that's the thing, the Order of Hermes is this other great institution that could potentially have a lot of indirect influence or has to operate within the ecosystem of mythic, the mythic medieval. So I think that the covenant is really the conduit by which they're going to connect to the church because they may need to bribe a priest or they may need to not cast magic that's so blatant that the church comes after them. They need to, you know, keep in good standing with the liege lord there, but they can't swear fealty. So that's always a tricky political situation. They need to befriend the cheesemaker. And the other thing is that the, the covenant is the place where somebody's probably going to turn if they have a magical problem that the church can't solve. Like if you've got that fairy ring that you mentioned that people are falling into and the priest is is ineffectual, they're going to have to go knock on that covenant door. And maybe that's how they end up working for the covenant, or maybe it allows the covenant to draw some close relationships. So what I like about the covenants is that they can be very magical and they have these great personalities, but they're also this place where the prosaic and the very mundane can also be present at the same time. And I think that that's really wonderful and a rich place for stories. And if we want more information, where can we go? So Ars Magica is the IP for that's held by Atlas Games. So you can go atlas.games.com. They're the official developers. There's also the redcap.org, um, which is also really great. If you're looking for a crash course in Ars Magica or just can't remember something, Redcap often has an answer. There's also some Ars Magica zines that were kicking around um, around first when uh, Ars Magica, the fifth edition first came out. Um, so you can find uh, some of those kicking around still as well. There are other websites. You can Google. Google's magic. And we will include those in the show notes. I mean, overall, in my experience reading this, I really like the power that separating the botch system from the difficulty system gave us because it allows us to create environmental hazards that Mage doesn't really have. So for instance, you could increase the botch pool because you're doing magic in a place that's not friendly to you. Or it's a good way to represent how opposed the current paradigm is to you. The magic isn't any more difficult. It is just more vicious if it fails. And I, I very much like that. The covenant creation is very plot hook oriented. It very much wants each bit that you add is also kind of a story hook to it. Each, since wizards are fighting each other for stuff, your library is now the target of other people. The world it creates, creates some very strong incentives. Like for instance, you made mention to the fact that in this game, wizards can't swear fealty. I think it would be kind of interesting if the Traditions or the Disparates had the same thing. Like, if you're a member of the Disparates, you're not allowed to be a registered member of a political party or something like that. And I think kind of having those social expectations, since it is a more cohesive paradigm, it creates some more interesting fallout. I really like the idea that the gift causes people to mistrust you. And I think that creates a very interesting mage world if 
mages are generally shunned by non-mages except for the few that have very high willpower and suddenly we can get a world where in the same way vampires are solitary creatures but they just want some companionship if the only other wizard in my city that i can talk to without getting weirded out has a wildly opposed paradigm to me i may still seek them out just to have someone to talk to and i i really like that spell yeah it's not something that's spelled out in ars magica but it's definitely there you know that's one of the things that i think doesn't get emphasized enough about the order of hermes and in either setting is that is that it does create this place where wizards can come together and just be wizards. It's unique in that way in the world of darkness. It's the only society that is explicitly for that. I think that this companionship piece is really interesting. Wizards probably do get lonely. Is there a wizards dating app? Wrote lur, lur. Yeah. Is that, is that just for archmages? I imagine the technocrats have, have a pretty robust dating infrastructure. <laughs> I, I would be fascinated by that. I, I like the idea also in the game that spells have types of failures, that you can have everything work perfectly, mm. you have everything works perfectly, but you're fatigued by it, and it has a failure. You have these warping effects that are almost independent. I like how in this game, expanding uh, spending this to make a spell easier also ups the stakes of failure. So I like the idea that you can spend quintessence, but if you botch, it's going to be a bad one in terms of maybe what it adds to to your quiet pool or something like that. The botch options, I think, are pretty fascinating and include the thing, as Thrice said, about a spell working too well or suddenly a mage you don't like has an arcane connection formed to you. So your spell against the NWO operative succeeds and you're able to crush all of the the black suits but that gray suit now has a three-point arcane connection to you and can kind of always figure out where you are and i think that creates a, a bunch of interesting options there's also on the mundane side there are a bunch of magical correspondences where it just has big tables of like jasper is used in association with this kind of magic yeah and the time as mechanism thing I think is super important because it gives a storyteller another variable to demand. It's not just number of successes and it's not just points of quintessence, but yeah, you can cast this effect, but it will literally take three months. Is that what you want to do? And now suddenly, if you're a mage in the world, unlike Ars Magica, mages don't automatically have access to a covenant and now you need to seek out a horizon realm where you can cast the six month spell or you need to put your affairs in order before you start this great undertaking or something like that and i think those are all things that we can take directly into our mage games yeah ours magic is really big on stone lore so if, if you want a game where you can power game stone lore ours magic is the game for you days the- there are two other things that I wanted to mention that I really like about the Magica system, besides what, what, what you've mentioned already. The It's uh, finesse and penetration. So I think that these are two really interesting mechanics. I, I use them in my home game. I, I haven't quite figured out exactly how to mesh them cleanly, but maybe some of the other players might find this useful. But in Ars Magica, you've got finesse. So let's say throwing a fireball doesn't 
require any finesse. You just hurl that fireball and boom, it automatically hits your target, right? Whereas if you're if you're trying to sneakily to manipulate a bucket of paint to fall right over your uh, right over the the prince that's giving you a hard time to embarrass him, that would require a finesse roll, right? And so so you'd have to cast your magic, but you'd also require some kind of finesse roll to make sure that you're able to kind of indirectly hit your target. And I like that because um, it, it allows for a nuance or subtlety to how magic is able to manifest in the world. Like, sure, you can make something happen, but can you aim it? Like, I think that's very interesting. And then penetration is a little unique to Ars Magica because it has a magical defense system. But I think that it, it could be interesting to consider some kind of uh, either cardamom or counter magic um, mechanics that where it's used. So penetration is basically, it's a skill you can add to break through any kind of magic, magical defenses. So mostly this is Parma Magica, but other magical creatures like dragons often have, have natural magical defenses. So I think that those are two interesting mechanics that mage players can have a look at, particularly with uh, stuff like Primium that exists in the world of darkness. I think that uh, having some kind of specialized penetration skill might give you knowledge about how to how to get through primium or even it might give you special knowledge about how to break through wards and stuff mm -hmm. or it could be adapted into some kind of ward mechanics so i think it's an interesting idea i don't know quite how to adapt it to ascension but Check it out. You might yeah. like it. And that is something that we get in Mage the Awakening, where spell potency is certainly something we do, where you can put extra successes into making it harder to dodge or avoid the effects of something. We have talked for quite some time, and it has been delightful. Likewise. Thrice great. Do you have um, <laughs> any online presence or projects that you're planning or anything we can point our listeners at at this time or to, to wait with bated breath for? Yes. So you can find me. I'm listed as Harko on the Mage the Ascension server. Please be nice. <laughs> I have several projects in the wings. Um, I have a project that I'm having a second reader check out. It's called After the Storm. And it is plot hooks and sort of brief descriptions of the nine traditions and how they dealt with the Avatar Storm and kind of where they're at now. And it goes sub-faction by sub-faction. So that's a lot of fun. I included some of the, the stuff that got taken out for revised, like, for instance, most of the ecstatic, well, not most of them. There's still a lot of ecstatic sub-factions, but there were a couple like the Vatras and... Um, the uh, Gonzo's Rangers. I was scandalized. I love Gonzo's Rangers. <laughs> so if you want some Gonzo's Rangers action, look for After the Storm. After that, it's going to be pretty much exclusively Order of Hermes content. I have a House Mercere book that I recently revisited and still needs a little bit of development. So I'm finishing up the development work on that, but I'm hoping to have that out by the end of the summer. Thrice great. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much, Terry. This has been Mage the Podcast, where whenever we record an episode during Pride about the Hermetics, I just have Mika's It's My House running through my head. Our executive producers include Joshua Hillerup, Oracle of the Third Masasa War, caused by the Hermetics feeling excluded from V5 and just kind of starting shit. Buck Farmer, Oracle of the Rise of Tremere, when he realized that he and Kane had something in common and he should go on a long soul-searching quest to make a real friend. 
Christopher Phillips, Oracle of the 14th House of the Hermetics, the House Gucci. Mikhail, Oracle of the Real Parma Magica, Parma Ham, which shields us from boring flavor. Jay Widener, Oracle of Wizards Twilight, which is the name of a street drugs all the kids are doing, and when they do, they call it Getting Hermetic. The Crew of Erebus, Oracle of the Wizards Walk, which is like Wizards March, but you don't need to keep step all the time, but you still blow stuff up. Additionally, I'd like to thank Alex, Alexia, Andrews S, Andrew Edelstein, Anon, Birdo, Blaze Hibbert, Bedurfi, Boo, Boogers, 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 Brad of the Blue, Bryce Perry, Chris B, Daniel Cuppin, Daniel Scribner, Dan Svensson, David Roy, Dennis Osborne, Derek Semsek, Gargalin Noir, George Laura, Guy Conan Stewart, Yibble, Jason Kennedy, Jason W. Briggs, Jeff Bryn, Jenna F., John Magnuson, Joshua Heath, Kathleen Halperin, Leslie Weatherstone, Matthew Prohl, Michael Creedle, Michael Parker, Morgan Aran, Nathan Weaver, Nibero, Neil Patterson, Nikita Klamanov, Oliver Schindler, Patrick McNamara, Patrick Mulder, Pugaji, Rachel Grace, Ralph Scheinhammer, Ricardo, Richard Bat Brewster, Robart the Robot, Rob H., Ryan Kendi, Samuel Tobin, Stephen Carton, Thrice Great, William Connolly, William Martin, and Zach Rules. Our EP shout-out is to Blaze Hibbert, whose name can produce six words in English of nine letters in length, including beastlier, bleariest, herbalist, irritable, liberates, and steerable. And if you add a wildcard character to it, you get the 12-letter word bleacherites, which reached its top usage in 1923 and means a person sitting in the bleachers. It entered the language between 1895 and 1900 along the same time as Marxism, apothecary's measure, backwind, calling card, and slapstick. Thanks, Blaze. If you super liked this episode or super didn't, drop us a line at madesthepodcast at gmail.com or at madesthepodcast on Twitter. We have a hop and Discord community at discord.me slash madesthepodcast. If you like us, please give us a review on the platform of your choosing and tell a friend about us. Also go to madesthepodcast.com for show notes and all of our previous shows. Now go change reality. Bye. You're canceled. Yes. This podcast is canceled. <laughs> I am opening with that, by the way. That is going before I do the introduction. Um... I also like the fact that you mentioned gods and monsters. Gods and monsters has this whole thing where it's like, none of these characters consider themselves to be disposable and are living, breathing, three-dimensional characters. For more information, see M20 Core, and you go to M20 Core, and it's like, retainers, essentially disposable. (laughs) And I'm like, ah, that's my mage. Yeah, yeah. Well, how we see ourselves is not how necessarily how others see us, and it's definitely not how the game designers see us. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we're, we're, we're all the protagonists of our own story. Sometimes we shouldn't be. Bloring.